This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. My study this week was a little odd. It was in the book of Habakkuk, uh, and... Sometimes you don't really feel like uh, you've studied the Bible when all you do is spend the week studying Habakkuk. Uh, I know it sounds like a funny statement, but usually you feel like you need a few New Testament scriptures to feel like you really dug in. Uh, But it was uh, a very, very significant uh, week for me. And as a result, I have a burden this morning. There's something about uh, even reading how it was described of what Habakkuk had. It starts with the, the burden of Habakkuk. Uh, and that's a very odd statement. Instead of the word of the Lord came to Habakkuk, it's the burden of Habakkuk. And ironically, that word in the Hebrew even can be translated as the carrying away. And what he saw was the carrying away of uh, the nation of Judah uh, into the hands of the uh, Babylonians. And, uh, and so it's an interesting statement to call it a burden, uh, but this is something he saw. Habakkuk saw something. And it's hard to relate to the Old Testament prophets because God doesn't necessarily work in the same way with us today. At the same time, I can say that I have a burden and it's something that I've seen. That's strange, but I don't know it's the same way that Habakkuk saw it. But he sees the carrying away of his people. He sees sin taking hold of a people so strongly that no longer can the preaching of the word or the prophecy of a prophet have any effect. To the point that those that were the called of God, those that are literally the bearers of the Messiah, the messianic heritage, the seed line, can no longer hear. And when I look around in our culture, uh, I have a burden. And I see us being carried away, and it's happening quickly to the point where you sometimes wonder if you're strange, that you are feeling like, is this, am I the one that thinks it's bad? You know, like that old timer type of thing where the old timers always have trouble with the music of the younger people. It's just like, whoa, turn down your music. It's way too loud. Am I just one of those old people that now is extra sensitive and I think everything is bad? Uh, you know, you, I used to walk two miles uh, to school in the snow both ways uphill when I was young, and now kids have it so easy. Is that what's happening? Am I just getting old and gray and stodgy and fussy and irritable and acrimonious in my attitude? Or am I seeing something? Now, it's interesting. If we were to take a poll in here, and I would say, do you have that burden, that burden of Habakkuk too, where there seems to be two choices. Either you agree with the flow of the culture and you just go silent and say, this is just how things work. You know, this is where everyone's going. I'm going with them. Or you carry a burden and it grieves you. 
and something actually begins to gnaw away at you on the inside where it begins to hurt and where there's even a sense of loneliness uh, that is associated with the prophet's role. When you begin to see something, it's a lonely sight because you look around and no one else seems to bring it up. I know, you know, you can go to Fox News all you want, but Fox News isn't carrying the burden that I carry. In other words, they may carry the, the burden for the conservative political agenda and the conservative social agenda, but they don't carry the burden for the glory of Jesus Christ that I feel. I'm concerned for the church, not just the culture, because when the church goes silent, when the church starts participating in the decadence of a culture, when the church can allow it in and then cover it over and say, we're fine, get away, stop shouting at us, stop preaching the word, we don't want the Bible in the church anymore. What is the church without Jesus? What is it? What have we come to that we can sit by and silently and passively accept where things are at? And I guess if I could say it, in, in reading Habakkuk, I recognize there's a heritage of this throughout the ages. There's a heritage of when the people of God begin to lose sight, when they lose the heat, when they lose the life, that God will give a burden to people in that midst. And I would like to carry that as a body, a burden. I don't want us to just feel isolated alone. I want us to carry it together. But to carry it, there's something that we need to do, and that's what this message is about. In the, uh, it's interesting because God speaks to Habakkuk. Habakkuk cries out to God, and uh, God speaks to Habakkuk. And he actually says, lay it out clearly for the people, and those that see it, may they run. And I feel like for us, I want it to be as clear as it can be so that we can respond, so that we can act, as opposed to just hear. I actually think that we are in a very dangerous place as a church because we hear strong truth, and if we don't act upon that strong truth, what it does is it compacts and self-justifies our defeat because we think and we confuse the hearing of truth with the living of truth. When in actuality, you can hear truth all day long, but if you start justifying the fact that you don't need to live it out, that that conviction that you felt doesn't need to be responded to, then you're actually in a more dangerous state than ever before. The Jews had an out as well. Well, I'm of Abraham. God will take care of me. And, oh, I'm a believer. I'm a, I'm a Christian. God will take care of all those things. What about that conviction you're feeling right now? It doesn't really matter. God will overlook those things. You see, this are, these are the first signs of failure in the church. When we start trifling over the little matters in our soul, and we don't allow God's work of conviction to bring us to the next step, when we actually say, hey, it doesn't matter, that is the first sign of death in our soul. It's when we actually say, this matters. I do not want to lose the conviction of God. I do not want to lose the closeness with my creator. Then respond. That is the first sign of life. So as, as a result, the first sign of death and the first sign of life are very closely associated. It has to do with how you treat the small areas of your life the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If we just hear but don't do, we die. But when we hear and we do, we live. Simple principle of truth. 
going after revival. So it's an interesting statement. I could have just called this uh, something like revival, and it could have been a study in revival. I don't want to do a study in revival. I've, I've spent a lot of time studying revivals. I've read loads of books, loads of historical accounts, loads of biographies that deal with revival. I know uh, the, the message of revival very well. In fact, you do too. I don't always call it revival. Today, I am going to call it revival. I think it's needed. I think we need to tag exactly what we're after, call it by name, and then go after it. But going after revival, is revival something you can go after? Is revival something that we have any influence over? Or is it something that God just chooses randomly, or as we could say, sovereignly, which oftentimes people mix up sovereignly and randomly? Is it something that God randomly just does in this earth? That's a key question, because today I'm going to say, I'm going after revival. You can join me, but I'm going after revival. So the subtitle, The First Steps Towards Changing the World. First steps towards changing the world is allowing God to change this. God to change this. This is the first step. So that's where we're going to start. If we're going after revival, we start with saying, God, I need revival here. God, we need revival here. God, I need revival in my marriage. I need revival in my family. God, I need revival in my church. But it starts with us as individuals. So we can crave something all we want, but there's a doing that must take place. The kingdom of heaven is built around not just the proclamation of truth, but the response to truth. And that is something that is within our jurisdiction or our say. We can sit or we can do. And for all of us in here, there is a necessary and requisite doing that we must begin with. So Habakkuk. Habakkuk has a burden. He has seen something. And this is his response. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known in wrath remember mercy. You see, when you begin to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin, when you see what Habakkuk saw, when you see that which was meant to bring glory to him actually being used to trounce upon his glory, you recognize that there is one thing that is deserving, and that is judgment. And in this culture, there is one thing I can say very clearly without stuttering, and that is we are deserving as a nation of a very severe judgment right now. And as a church, we are deserving of a very severe correction. These are facts. These are not negotiable things. These are facts that might upset people, but I'm not exactly sure who these people are that are getting upset. Do they know what the Word of God says? Are they justifying the behavior of our culture and the behavior of the church within this culture? Instead of shining like a light, we're trying to pacify. We want to be liked as the church instead of standing on a hill and exposing the light of God and taking whatever comes our way. Either we're going to be Christians as Christians are supposed to be, or we will rot. There is no middle ground. You cannot be the light of the world and hide it. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. What is revival? In a very simple sense, because you could use the term revive uh, without talking about the church, when something regains its original life, passion, excitement, and enthusiasm, when something is revived, we have a sense of the word without me needing to define it, 
But I'm not just interested in reviving. I'm interested in a revival of something very specific, and that is the Church of Jesus Christ. Eric Ludi, my family, the Ludi family, the church at Ellerslie. I, there's a small C church, which represents us here. We're the small C church. And then there's the big C church. That's the global church. And I have a passion, first and foremost, for this church. I see no reason to go outside of these walls and try and see revival come to this nation or this world if we're stinking it up in here. I have a burden to see my own family strong in Christ, and then I have a desire to see us strong in Jesus Christ. So what is a revival in the church of Jesus Christ? It's when the body of Christ is brought again to its proper intensity for obedience to and purity in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go through each one of those, and I want you to evaluate. This is a doing message. This is a message that requires a doing in each of us. I do not want us to sit as bystanders, as, as uh, window shoppers to the truth. I want us to enter into this reality. This is what every single one of us must have. Intensity for Jesus Christ. This, this, this truth, this faith, this life, this redemption, this work of the cross, this salvation, this resurrection, this ascension, this power, this commission is worthy of all my energy, all my hours, all my days, all my talents, all my resources, all my time, all my life. That's a revival. When you see it afresh, you see, when you first fall in love, there is a a delight in sharing your life and sharing every aspect of who you are. There's words that are loving and kind and gentle that flow out, that are sweet and poetic that flow out. Why? Because there is a life and a love that is fresh and you see it and there's enthusiasm and excitement for it. And then when that fades, what do you need? You need a reviving. To have that reviving, you must freshly focus on that person and make them a study again. Instead of seeing their weaknesses, you begin to see the virtues. And then what happens is there's a reviving of that excitement, that love, that enthusiasm. And when you recognize, if any of you have ever come close to losing something precious, whether it's a marriage or whether it's a family member, whatever it may be, what happens, it's sort of the 9-11 effect. Everyone after 9-11 sort of comes home and snuggles up with their family and says, I love you, I love you, I love you, because you begin to realize how precious this is and you've been taking it for granted. That's exactly what must take place in your spiritual life. And don't consider yourself the victim to say, well, I don't have any control in that. Well, could you imagine? That's a great way to stink up your marriage too. You have to choose to focus on him and say, God, I'm not feeling something, but I better. And I know that this is true. And until I have the fullness of the emotion that's supposed to be there, that enthusiasm that's supposed to be there, I'm giving myself to you. Because I know in my mind that you're worthy. But we have to have the energy of life. We have to have the excitement and the enthusiasm of our soul turn towards the living God. This is worthy of all my energy, all my hours, all my days, all my talents, all my resources, all my time, and all my life. Some of us have competing things in our life that we have more intensity for than the person of Jesus Christ. Sports, hunting, computers, games, technology, shopping. I know more guy things. When I get into the shopping thing, I start to fade, and I don't relate to it. However, 
whatever it may be, where you literally, literally, literally is something other than Jesus that has your heart and your affections, repent of that. If there is anything that is crowding out the enthusiasm of your soul for your Savior, your Redeemer, repent of that afresh today. Obedience to whatever he asks me to make right, I will. Whatever he asks me to confess, I will. Whatever he says needs to go, it will. Whatever he says needs to be added, it will. Whatever, whoever he asks me to share the gospel with, I will. And wherever he asks me to go, no matter the suffering and the difficulties that may attend the action, I will go. I just enunciated a revival. This is exactly what historic revival has always shown in the church. When revival comes, this is precisely the effect that it takes upon the individual life. They're saying, this is worthy. I mean, remember the first one, Intensity 4? This is worthy of everything. Don't you know how important this is? Well, if it's that important, prove it. Give him your life. He wants to lead you. He has a burden for this world, and he wants to animate that burden in and through you. Purity in. Search me, O Lord, and know my thoughts. If there be any wickedness in me, expose it. If there be any motive in my soul that is ulterior to your agenda in my life, bring it to the surface that I may get rid of it. If there be any habit that is undermining my singular devotion to you, eradicate it. This, these three things, when they are in full operational movement, is a revival. When an individual life begins to function this way, they cannot help but grow strong in Jesus Christ and shine light. They can't help but shine love because they have an intensity for an obedience to and a purity in the person of Jesus Christ. They're back to working order. So for us as a body, these must be the defining attributes. How does a revival come about? First, there are two key participants in revival. I know, it's shocking. However, a lot of people only have one. They have God. It's like, well, God's not doing it, so I guess it's not going to happen. That is a defeated way to live, especially since God in the Bible makes it very clear that we have a job. And so you can super-spiritualize it all you want and try and blame it on God that we don't have revival. However, are you doing what he's asked you to do? He has given us a very clear command of how to live and what to do. If you were a farmer and you said, well, no crops are coming out, who would be at, at fault? God for not bringing about the crop or you as the farmer for not doing what your father taught you to do? Here's the land, son. Well, dad, what am I supposed to do with that land? Uh, God says you're supposed to bring out a harvest. Okay, dad, but uh, I don't know how to do that. Okay, I'll teach you. What do you think the Bible is? Okay, son, I'm going to teach you what to do with that land known as the human body. I want you to plow Till up that soil. I want you to plant. I want you to water. Then I want you to weed. Then I want you to water. Then I want you to weed. Then I want you to water. Then I want you to weed. I want you to water. Then I want you to bring about a harvest. I want you to take that harvest in and bring it into the storehouse. You see, there is a process of bringing about a crop. And it is not some mysterious process that we have to super spiritualize and say, oh, I don't know how that's going to happen. It's something that is a direct result of obedience. When you do what God asks you to do, I guarantee you he will do what he says he will do. We need to do what he has asked us to do, and that's where it starts. Some of you are flagging in your spiritual existence. You're weighted down with the cares of this life. 
The conditions of this culture, for instance, you've been watching too much Fox News. And as a result, you're weighted down with a burden, but not God's burden. You're mad, is what you are. You're upset and you're frustrated with the fact that these liberals are taking this perfectly good country and flushing it down the drain. And you're waiting for someone else to get their act together to chew them out. That's not how you change the world. You change the world by getting a burden for God. To say, God, it starts here. I've lost sight of you. It's not just this nation that's lost sight of you. I have lost sight of you. We have lost sight of you. We're so easily distracted with the things of this earth that we forgot what we're here for. God, start in us and bring about a revival. Start here, Lord Jesus. This world can be changed and will be changed based on the word and the promise of God if we do what he asks us to do. It's precisely what the book of Habakkuk is. Hey, guys, if you do what I said for you to do, then guess what? I will change things. However, if you do what I told you not to do, this is a guarantee of what will happen. You see, God's going to be faithful. He'll be faithful to his word either way. If we harden ourselves, justify ourselves in our sin, we will come under judgment. But when we humble ourselves, when we pray and we seek his face, when we repent of our sin, when we take a low position and say, God, I am a sinner. I have violated your word. I have made a blemish upon your name. We start right here and we say, it's me that did it, not you. And we humble ourselves and accept that. He heals us. He heals the land. He just does. This is his pattern. Always has been. So there are two key participants in revival. God and us. You see, it's not just God that brings about a revival. It is God that brings about a revival. Just like God brings forth a crop, he brings the rain. I can't do any of that. If I'm a farmer, I'm dependent upon God to do his part. However, there's something that I need to be doing. And if I'm not doing it, I can't expect to see a harvest. The principles of revivals. God will when man tills. God endows when man plows. God endues when man pursues. Some nice phrases for those of you that like turns of phrases. Second, there are four key ingredients in every revival. Now, I'm going to introduce you to a mysterious hidden fifth one, but I just want you to focus on this because this is oftentimes what we understand. Men pray and men obey. A revival has never happened in this earth without the burden of Habakkuk coming upon the church of Jesus Christ and bringing them to their knees to say, God, you must do something. God, we need you. God, you must revive your people. It will not happen without prayer. Prayer is God's chosen instrument to move him. He's like, hey, guys, I'm going to respond to prayer, the prayer of faith. So you need to be praying. And then men obeying. You see, it's not just praying. It's actually the obeying. There's certain things that God wants us to obey in today, not just pray and say, oh, God, yeah, forgive the sin of the world. But God, you're giving me a specific burden of what I have done wrong and I need to make right. I'll do it. And when you pray and you obey, God responds. And what happens? The church is activated. The church changes. You could look at this in individual life. 
Someone's praying for you. You're praying yourself. You obey. You take the first step of obedience forward. God responds, and boom, everything begins to change in your life. Now, there's a mysterious hidden movement here that you don't see in the list, and that is what comes before one. God gets all the credit for a revival. I don't believe, believe me, I'm not trying to put it on man, as if man's in charge of this whole thing known as uh, Christianity. God is the sponsor of everything. If a man's praying, a woman's praying, it's because God is breathing. God's moving. However, it still is based on a simple formula. In other words, you could try and make a loaf of bread supernaturally with nothing, no ingredients, and these are the ingredients. If you don't have the praying and the obeying, it's like not having the flour and the water and the yeast. You see, you need certain ingredients that you then put together. And that's the exact same thing God is saying. Hey, haven't I told you to pray? He has. Hasn't he told us to obey what he's asked us? Yes, he has. If you do this, if my people who are called by my name do this, 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 and this, then I will. You see, God guarantees it that if we do what we've been asked to do, he will respond. So, how about we start there? Instead of overcomplicating and saying, oh, well, we sure do need a revival. Well, then let's go after one. If we need one, let's go after one. And I'm going to just tell you, we need one. A revival isn't supposed to be a mysterious move of the Holy Spirit. It's supposed to be the obvious response of a God who has promised and cannot lie. You see, it's not mysterious how a crop comes about. I mean, I don't know how many of you are confused over that. You see, that farmer plowed, tilled the soil, planted, and then he watered. And then, you know, he took care of that crop when it was growing, and then guess what? Out came, whoa, a crop. How did that happen? It wasn't mysterious, even though the whole process is super governed by God. I mean, a crop cannot succeed without God. It can't. However, it's not mysterious. It's actually a very natural flow. Even though God created the heavens and the earth, that's very mysterious. It still is a work of his order. He made it this way. And he said that if we do this, 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 and this, then we will receive this. The entire basis of creation is gauged on that. God has set in order certain principles in his creation that when we agree with them, out comes life. So let's not super spiritualize these things. Let's do what we know to do. When a farmer tills, when a farmer tills, plants, waters, weeds, waters, weeds, waters, weeds, and waits, 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 and waits, then comes the life, the harvest, the bounty. It's not mysterious. It's, God, it's God's built-in response to man doing as God has told him to do. A farmer's obedience to the laws of farming equals a great harvest. James 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You see, God is going to give early rains and he's going to give late rains in this process. But the coming of the Lord is at hand. God will come just as he promised. Has he not promised to come? Now, I'm going to put a big C on that. The coming of the Lord, when I say the coming of the Lord, you're thinking, you know, he's coming in the clouds and all sorts of songs come into your head. However, I'm going to now make it the small C. In every situation in your life of need, when you humble yourself, when you pray and seek his face, 
When you obey the movement of the Holy Spirit, he will come. Small c. Every single time. So be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. What's that? I'm going to explain that in just a second. See how the farmer waits. This is the direct illustration used in James. See? The farmer, what did he do? He did what he was supposed to do. And as a result, now, see how he waits for the precious fruit of the earth. It will come just as the coming of the Lord will come. He's likened unto the coming of fruit or crop. It's exactly what it's likened unto. It's a promise. It's guaranteed in the framework of his creation. Being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Makrathameo. It's a pretty interesting word. Makrathameo. You just want to say it a few times. It means be patient. Now, I've taught on patience various times and used some different words. Hupomeno, for instance, some of you may remember. This is a different word. Translated for us as English speakers into be patient, but it's something very specific. It's a little different than what hupomeno is. To be long-spirited, to bear or suffer for a long period of time, to be long-suffering, have long patience. Isn't that an interesting statement? To have long patience, not just patience. Say, this isn't just the average version of patience. This is long patience. It means you're going through difficulty. And you have an endurance as you go through. You have makrathameo, which means hold it together. Keep going. Don't let go. God will come. Stay on your knees. Keep praying. But God, the culture's going down. You stay in position. You keep believing. You keep obeying. I guarantee you, my God will come through for you. That is a guarantee in the framework, and that's the very word that we're exhorted to follow, to be long in our patience. Don't just rush and say, oh, he hasn't come through. I guess we're going to have to jump ship here. Hold the line. God will come through. To patiently endure, to be of a long spirit, to not lose heart, to persevere patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles. You also be makrathomel. You have that long spirit. Have that long suffering. Have that long patience. That one that's willing to endure for long lengths of time, difficulties and trials, because you know the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be a good farmer. You do what you're supposed to do, and it's a guarantee God will do what he will need to do. God will come through for you. That is fact. You build your life upon it. That's called faith. So there's a second part to this. You also be patient. It's in in likeness to a farmer. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So the promise to you is the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, instead of putting a capital C on that, I want you to put a small C on it. God is going to come through in your life. The coming of the Lord in your individual circumstances will happen. It's a guarantee. You handle it like a farmer. You till, you plant the seed, you water, you weed, you water, you weed, you water, you weed, and you wait. And you wait, and you wait. That crop's coming. That reviving will take place, not just in your own life, but in the lives of others around you. God will come through. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Now listen to the word establish. Sterizo, to establish. may have mentioned this last week. To make stable, place firmly, set fast, fix. To strengthen, make firm, to render constant, confirm one's mind. 
So you make a decision on it right now. Is God going to come through for you if you do what a farmer ought to do? He will. Fix your mind on that and don't waver. Do not be like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. Has God promised? Yes, he has. Then stay the course. Be suffering, be long in your suffering, be long in your patience. And establish your hearts. Fix your mind to the word of God and do not waver. The coming of the Lord is at hand. God will come through. If we go after the reviving, the reviving will come. We must stay the course and do what we've been asked to do. As a farmer, we can't stop weeding somewhere along the line. We can't allow the wolves or the, you know, the banshees to come you know, going through our, or the, how about the, the foxes with fire on their tails run through our fields. We have to guard that which God, God has entrusted us. We must keep it until that day. But the coming of the Lord is at hand. We count those blessed who endured. We count those blessed who had makrath the male, who had a long patience. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. So you've seen Job, and so he's like, I don't want to see Job. I don't want to think about Job. Why are you bringing Job up? You see, Job is a pattern for God's kingdom. This is how it works. You notice that Job went through difficulty and he had to suffer long. And when he suffered and he held the point, he established his heart in the midst of it, what was the outcome? So it says, we count those blessed who have makrathameo. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. See the outcome? Did you know that things were multiplied unto Job? He had even a greater outcome than even before. In other words, something was multiplied unto him. Do you see the graciousness of God in this? So how do we find a revival right here in Windsor, Colorado? Let's heed the simple laws of farming. I am so utterly convinced of this, that if we do the simple things that God has asked us, and we start tilling the ground and plowing this hard, compacted soil that some of us may be lugging around, that God is going to bring an increase, that God is going to do something in our midst that is beyond anything we could dream or imagine, because He can't help but do it. He's God, and he cannot change. He cannot lie. He does what God does. And so if we allow God to do what God does by getting out of the way with our stubbornness, with our our hard-heartedness, with our self-justifications, and we humble ourselves in his sight, instead of complaining about the liberal media, instead of complaining about the homosexual lobby, Instead of complaining about ISIS and the Islamic agenda in this earth and focusing on that, why don't we focus on the power and the faithfulness of our God? And if we as the church fix our gaze upon that which can change things, as opposed to all the nonsense that is taking place around us, what's going to happen? We will change, and the world will not be able to help but change too. Because when the church begins to function as a church, you can take a trip back to the book of Acts and find out what happens. But that's what happens. God didn't give us this testimony to show us that, oh, there was a random occurrence. No, that's what was promised. Remember, Peter? This is what was promised in the book of Joel. Hey, guys, this is just what happens. The Messiah has come, and this is what he does. So if we're interested in having the Messiah do what he does, we need to be like farmers. Could you imagine no one has ever seen a crop come out of the earth 
And someone comes up to a guy, it's like, you have some land. Yeah, it just sort of has a lot of weeds on it, though. Well, did you know that there's something called the laws of farming? That if you do this, 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 and this, you will actually get uh, this. Like, what? I, I mean, that was just in the legends? I mean, way back in, the, in olden days, they had that. They actually had fruit and crops and corn and, you know, wheat. I mean, they had stuff like that. But no way. You see, if you heed the laws of farming, you get the results, which are the crop. We as Christians, if we heed the simple word of truth and we do precisely as God has asked us to do, I don't care how hard it is. You know that the walking the Christian life out is actually the harder way. It's not easy. It goes against the grain. God makes it very clear of that. Come to this cross and die. Huh? Well, what do you mean, die? Give up your life as you now know it. Release your expectations. Give the controls of your body to the living God who purchased it with his blood. You want to see how the Christian life is supposed to work? Mm -hmm. That's how it works. But if you do that, you will see the power of God in your life. Fact. God isn't random. He's not capricious. Where one of us reaches out and goes, God, can I trust you to take my hand if I reach out? And he's like, ah, <laughs> no, I'm going to give it to this guy over here, not you. <laughs> That's not how God works. That's called capriciousness. That's how the devil works, by the way. If you don't like that type of work, then stay away from the devil. However, one of the things we know about God is that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. When you go after God, he will be found. When you go after God, you will find him. When you knock, he will open. When you seek, you will find. Guaranteed in the kingdom of heaven. So we need to get the randomness out of our thinking. We've been reasoning from the mysterious instead of the clear. Is there a mysterious in the kingdom of heaven? Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, wait. You notice how some of us have, and wait, and wait, and wait. Some of us have wait, and then boom, it happened. It's like, why do some people only wait for one wait, and some people get 30 waits? It's mysterious, isn't it? However, God will come. The coming of the Lord is at hand, so you need to have a long patience. And no matter if it's 30 waits or one, it makes no difference. And technically, even if you had 30 waits, he said, well, Eric said that the max was 30. And then what would Jesus say? 30 times 3,000. It doesn't matter how many waits it is. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And he does not delay unnecessarily. He will do precisely as he has promised. Second Chronicles 7. Last week we talked about Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was surrounded by three armies and he was in a desperate situation. The whole study last week was on weakness and how God uses weakness as his stage to showcase his strength. In that, when he is at his weakest state, he did something. He went to the house of the Lord with the entire nation of Judah and they set their face to seek God and they humbled themselves before God. Do you know why? Because it was the laws of farming. Back in Second Chronicles, we actually have precisely what Jehoshaphat was responding to. He said, did you not say, God, that when this sort of thing happens, that if we do this, you will then do this? And guess what? God says, I like how this guy works. You're right, Jehoshaphat, so I will do that. That was the whole story last week. So I'm going to read to you what Jehoshaphat would have known. 
And the Lord appeared unto Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. What, what place? Solomon built the temple of God. So this is called the house of the Lord. And so this is the place that is chosen. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. Now, why would God do that? Does God just like to send pestilence among the lands? Hey, locusts, go get them. Those are my people. I love them, but let's have, make, give them a hard time. No, no. Why would God do that? He makes it very clear in the book of Deuteronomy why he would ever do that. If my people turn away from my word, if they walk in disobedience and hardness of heart, then I will do these things. So if I do this, it's because you guys have turned. It's because you guys have wandered away. So if this ever happens, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open and my ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. So what did Jehoshaphat do? He came to that place, set his face to seek God with the entire nation, and then appealed to Second Chronicles. He said, God, if, you, if we ever were to be in this condition, you said for us to do this. So that's what we're doing right now. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my, eye, that my name may be there forever and my eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Now some of you are going through a little despair moment right now as I read that because you're like, oh great, that temple was torn down. Oh no, we don't have a place to go. There is a greater temple that has been raised up. Remember Jesus, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. But the temple of which he spoke was his body. Whoa, his body? Who, what are you? What's your description? You're the body of Christ. It's been raised up. The name of Jesus, the name above all names, the temple of God, do you not know that when you enter into Christ, you repent of your old life and you enter into Christ, you enter into that temple. You don't just stand by it and stare at it. You are actually in that very presence of God. We have even a greater access unto the throne room of grace than even Jehoshaphat did. And if my people who are called by my name, what's his name? Jesus. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and will pray and will seek my face, if they will turn from their evil ways, what is he guaranteed to do? He will bring healing, restoration, wholeness. A crop that has been lost will be regained. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. How long should you seek? Till he come. How long should you remain in prayer? Well, till he come. How long should you keep oil in your lamp? Well, till he come. There isn't a point in between where we like, oh, take a hiatus from it. I've been waiting too long. Makrathameo means to be suffering long, to be patient in a long way, to be willing to endure until he comes. And when you do, you will reap just as the farmer reaps, guaranteed. So break up your fallow ground. You're going to notice that in the upcoming page of this message is going to be something called breaking up the fallow ground. 
Fallow ground is like compacted hard earth. And it's not producing crop. It's not producing that which you know you're supposed to be producing. So what should you do? Let's break it up. Because you need that ground, which is compacted, to be loosened. And as long as it is as stiff and as hard and as compacted, one layer compacted upon the other, you could plant seed on it, but that seed isn't going to take root. It's like throwing it on stone. So what's the commission? Let's break that ground up. Let's till it. So how do we till? Because this is the very beginning. If man tills, God will. God will do his part. But we need to do our part, which is to break up the fallow ground. Oswald Chambers, uh, this is a January 25th. You can say, what are you doing in January 25th, Eric? Uh, it's a different story. But leave room for God. Technically, this is sort of my inspiration for this morning's message is this little Oswald Chambers uh, quote. It's actually his January 25th uh, (coughs) selection. But when it pleased God, Galatians 1.15, as workers for God, we have to learn to make room for God, to give God elbow room. We calculate and estimate and say that this and that will happen, and we forget to make room for God to come in as he chooses. Would we be surprised if God came into our meeting or into our preaching in a way we had never looked for him to come? Do not look for God to come in any particular way, but look for him. That is the way to make room for him. Expect him to come. But do not, him to expect, do not expect him only in a certain way. However, however much we may know God, the great lesson to learn is that at any minute he may break in. We are apt to overlook this element of surprise. Yet God never works in any other way. All, and this is in an African translation, so it it spells all with one L. I'm not exactly sure. All of a sudden, God meets the life when it was the good pleasure of God. Keep your life so constant in its contact with God that his surprising power may break out on the right hand and on the left. Always be in a state of expectancy and see that you leave room for God to come in as he likes. Some of us are in a habit of living a certain way that doesn't allow elbow room. It doesn't allow room for God. During an Ellerslie semester, we call it space. So I'll just come up to the front and I'll go, I'm going to give some space here for uh, God to convict you. And if you want to come up and confess sin, if you want to do anything like that, confess faith, I'm just going to make space. You don't have to take advantage of it. I'm just going to, it's more, I'm giving it to God. Given that space, give him room. In our church, I'm not exactly sure if I could say that we have done that well. I would like God to rule our services. And I want us to make sure I'm not ever against form. However, if form kicks out the ability for God to do things that he maybe has never done before, then the form is not serving us properly. We have announcements, and then we have worship, and then we have uh, preaching of the word, and then we have some more songs. That's just how we do it at Ellerslie. I just want God to have this space, and I want to give him room to maneuver. For years, because of having students here on campus, we've had no room up here. And as a result, it's very difficult to respond even in this building to what's taking place. And there's been moments when many of you probably would have done whatever it took if that meant leap and try and touch the chandeliers, if that meant come to the front and weep. However, we haven't, we've been so tight in this room. I want to give room to God, not just spacious room, 
but room to allow him to maneuver. So this whole next section is exactly that. You see, there is a mysterious dimension. There's a mechanical, predictable dimension to the rules of farming, the laws of farming. You do this, God will do this. He will come. But there's a mysterious dimension. What has brought us to the point where we desire Jesus in the first place? You try and figure that one out. What has brought us to a point where in this room you are ready to be revived? There's a whole bunch of people in this earth that would mock what I'm saying right now, yet you want it. Why? It's somewhat mysterious, isn't it? In other words, God, by his Holy Spirit, is working in our lives. However, our job in this is to say yes. That's our job. To make a choice for him. To make a choice that might be uncomfortable. Because some of you have compacted turf in your life. You were convicted of a small thing, maybe a few weeks ago, and you shrugged your shoulders. And that small thing has now grown into a bigger thing because that, again, is like the laws of farming. The laws of farming have an equal and opposite direction, too. If you don't plow, it becomes fallow. If you don't do what a farmer is supposed to do, you lose the crop. If you don't water your seed, well, you won't grow. You see, some of us have walked in ignorance and some of us have walked in deliberate disobedience. But when you're dealing with small things, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. You need to go over and tell that person that what you did was wrong. Humble yourself and apologize. Oh, come on. Could you share the gospel with that person? Ah, that's awkward. God, you keep walking. Whenever we do the small things, and we shrug our shoulders, those are the moments that define the health of our soul. If you have found that there's anything that you shrugged off, that's what God wants to touch this morning. You don't need to get up and confess it. That's not even what I'm asking for. I'm saying you first deal with God. If we're gonna have revival in this church, we first start here. My goal isn't to just start with you, it's to allow God to touch me. And so I've already decided, I told God in the back that as we go through this next part, he can take me through it as well. I want to go through this afresh. Have I gone through it before? Mm -hmm. Farming's a seasonal thing. You go through it quite often. How many times have you tilled your soil, Eric? A lot. Does that mean I should stop moving forward? Mm -mm. We need to continually be doing these things. This is the exercise of the Christian. So as I go through this, I want you to respond to God as he leads you to respond. I'm going to read through a list of the historic ones before some of the greatest revivals that have ever taken place in our country. This was the list that was gone through. I think that's pretty fun. Would I add to this list? I can think of loads of things in addition to this. However, I'd sort of like to become old school here for a little bit and go through the old list. You know, if it worked back then, God, may it work in us today. The language is a little old, but it'll be sort of fun. We'll feel like uh, going back in time to some of the old revivals when God moved in such a powerful way that it became known as an awakening, an awakening of a nation. Yep, I'm interested. If we don't get it, we're judged. And that judgment isn't far off. The Babylonian Empire is just about ready to get us. Guys, we are at a sad state right now. And the time is short. 
God will not be mocked. We are a nation that has been entrusted more truth, more biblical literacy than maybe any nation in the history of the world, other than maybe the original Jews. And yet, and yet we've forsaken it for the most part. Most churches today do not preach out of the Bible. Most people in the, in the church today do not recognize Scripture. They're not discipled in the Word of God. They're, they're discipled into philosophies and in denominational frameworks of thought. We want to be discipled in Jesus Christ, to know Him, to be found in Him, and to reveal Him to the uttermost parts of this earth. And if we're going to get that job done, something needs to start in us. Breaking up the fallow ground. The first thing I want to go through is called sins of omission. A sin of omission are things that are omitted from our behavior. They're absent from our behavior. They're things that God has asked us to do, but we have not participated in them. They're equally a sin as a sin of commission. A commission is something you did. When you punch that guy in the nose, that's a committed sin. Does that make sense? As opposed to if God said, humble yourself and seek forgiveness, and you said no. That's an omission. So these are the sins of omission first. Ingratitude. Jesus Christ has given everything for you. When was the last time you showed gratefulness? How is your thanksgiving in your life? God has said to give thanks in all things. How you doing? Very likely, if every single one of us was laid out before that exact standard of truth, we would find that we are far short of the standard of righteousness. It's okay. But you need to acknowledge it. You need to recognize that that failure is not on God's part. God has given you his Holy Spirit to give you that thanksgiving, to express that gratefulness. So in gratitude towards God, in gratitude towards your parents, in gratitude towards your business leaders, in gratitude towards your church leaders, in gratitude towards the many blessings that we've received. How about in gratitude towards even our nation? In other words, we have been given much, but have we been grateful? Number two, want of love to God, which means you have not had the love for God and towards God that you ought to have. You've been thinking of yourself, in fact, you've been doing a little bit of grumbling. There's nothing like grumbling to hollow out and empty out the love for God. But that love that God intends you to have for him, that he has given you the storehouse and the wealth of his Holy Spirit so that you could enter into that depth of communion with him. He loves you and you can love him back via the Holy Spirit with the depths of heavenly love. If that's been omitted from your life, repent. Acknowledge it before God and make it right. Neglect of the Bible. You could be near it. It could be on your computer. It could be on your counter. It could be on your bedstand. It doesn't mean that you are feasting upon it. It doesn't make any sense to have food in the pantry and let it go moldy. And yet the word of truth has been given to us in a manner of accessibility that is unheard of in history. And many of us in here have neglected it. We have greater access to the word of life that has been preserved for ages and generations and men and women have died terrible deaths to preserve it, to get it to us. And we have neglected it. 
If that is true of any of us in here, let's humble ourselves, repent of that, and change direction on that point. Unbelief. God's word is clear, but do we believe it? God's promises are multitudinous, but do we believe them? Do we believe that he is sufficient or do we need to find our satisfaction somewhere else? Do we believe that he alone can save or do we want to bolster that with a few insurance policies? Have we been functioning in unbelief? And if so, let's repent. Neglect of prayer. You can know to pray, but that doesn't mean you pray. If prayer has been neglected in your life, repent. Break up the fallow ground. Neglect of the means of grace. What they meant by means of grace, what many of us understand means of grace might be slightly different in this context. But it simply means that which has been given you to enable you to function as a Christian. So for instance, your parents and their tutelage of of the Christian life, have you neglected it? Have you said, eh, I don't need that? Have you spurned it at any level? Or how about the church that you're surrounded with, the body of Christ, the training that you have access to? Whatever that may be, the means that God has given you to help you and to assist you, whether it's your education or whether it's your economy. Number seven, poor manner in performing sacred Christian duties. You've been sloppy in how you've done and lived out your Christianity. You've taken it for granted and you haven't lived as a prince or a princess with nobility in how you've handled it. You haven't done things diligently. You've done things slipshod. Sure, you did get up in the morning and had your little prayer time, but you were distracted the whole time. That drool that came down your face when you were on your knees with your face planted in the sofa was a result of you falling asleep. In other words, you have not been diligent in this. You have taken sacred opportunities and a sacred duty of being commissioned by the Most High God to be His workman in this earth, and you have failed in that. You have not been a good workman, a workman approved. Number eight, one of love for the souls of your fellow men. You know that God loves them, but inside of you is a blankness. You don't care if they go to hell or not. Something is wrong that is fallow ground. And you need to allow God to break up that compaction by repenting and believing that the spirit of grace desires to love it and through you. If you lack that love, it is not because God hasn't given it to you. It's because you have neglected to take it. Number nine, want of care for the heathen, the lost souls around you. You see, many of us today are so mad at the heathen, at the lost souls, because they are ruining this great experiment known as the United States of America, which is religious liberty and freedom unknown in the histories of nations. And they're squandering it and we're mad at them, and they get what they deserve. And some of you have wished judgment on all those that are contrary to the cross. Your want of care for them. For God so loved them that he gave his only begotten son, that if those heathen would believe in him, they would be saved and given eternal life. Do you carry his heart for the lost? Because if you don't, you need to repent. Because that heart has been made available to you. And if you will break up that fallow ground, repent of being hard, of lacking care and compassion and gentleness for those that oppose the cross. 
God wants to bring us to the point where we can love our enemies. We can love ISIS. We can love the reporter on CNN. We can love and care and cry and yearn and do whatever it takes to see the most notorious of sinners saved. Neglect of family duties. Well, there's a lot of stuff to be done. In ministry, oh, it's a great excuse. I'm working hard for for Jesus so that we neglect the family. We neglect our wives, our children. If we're neglecting family duties, that compacts because it's a clear command in Scripture. You are no better than an infidel if you take care of others and fail to take care of your own. Make sure you do not fail in neglect of family duties, neglect of social duties. It's called depraved indifference. Someone is drowning in a lake. You see it, you hear the screams, and you walk away and say, it's not my business. We suffer from it naturally. It's called sin. We think only of ourselves, but we have been saved from the power of that sin so that we would care in a way that no one else on earth cares. The rest of society may walk away. We cannot if we have neglected our social duties to respond to the needs around us as God makes it clear, as God gives us a drowning person in front of us, that we dive into those waters and rescue. If there is any point where we have neglected that, we need to repent. Neglect neglect of watchfulness over our own life. We have doors and windows and they need to be locked. You see, if you leave, open your window and it's negative 10 degrees outside and you go to bed, your house is going to get very cold. And the same is true with your own life. If you have neglected the care of your own individual life, the chill of the outer world has entered into you and the warmth of your love for God has been lost. If you see that, you need to close those windows, close those doors and lock them. You need to recognize that God intended us to be vigilant, to be watchful over this territory. Neglect to watch over our brethren. Some of us have opened up windows and doors in our own life, and we've actually, as a result, encouraged other people to do the same. Some of our brethren, that's the old term for the body of Christ, are hurting, and we have lacked care and a watchfulness over them. I know the standard that I'm raising is extremely high, it's still, this is what the Bible has asked us to do. A farmer needs to go out early in the morning and start work. Is that hard? Yep. Is the farmer's work difficult? Yep. Should he not do it then? No, he needs to do it if he wants a crop. You see, there's certain things that are a part of our life, but we have neglected them because we are self-centered and we want ease instead of a challenge. And God says, rise up out of bed and do. And when you do, I will give grace. I will give power. I will give my might to you. But you must rise. Neglect of self-denial. We knew that God was saying, stop. Have you ever been in the middle of an argument and God convicts you? It says you're proud and you keep pressing forward. Mm -hmm. That's a neglect of self-denial. 
I remember telling Hudson once, I said, the measurement of humility is the difference between, the, the, the separation of time between when you know that you've done wrong and when you acknowledge it. That's the clicking talk of humility, clicking, ticking clock of humility. How long is that distance that measures your humility? Right after I'd shared that with him, we were outside doing something and he did something. I go, Hudson. And he goes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that was wrong. That was pretty good. Could you imagine if all of us were functioning that way? You see, neglect of self-denial is when you know what you ought to do and you don't do it. Because it means a denial of self. It means humbling yourself. You're in an argument and you have a juicy point that you're bringing out, even though you're totally wrong in your attitude. And instead of just dropping it, instead of letting it go, instead of apologizing for what you're doing, your attitude, you keep going. You don't deny self. You override the Holy Spirit in that moment. If that is familiar territory for you, this needs to be repented of. Let's talk of sins of commission. Things done, acted out that were not of the nature of Jesus Christ. Worldly mindedness where you have taken in the world's thoughts, you have participated in the world's activities, and you have adopted them as your own. Oh, you have your slick justifications for it. You know, this is just my entertainment. I don't actually believe all that. However, you've allowed that mentality. It's not God talking to you. That's the slick attorney known as the devil convincing you that you can participate in this world, look like this world, act like this world, and still be fine with God. There is no support of that in the entire Bible. God calls us out of this world. He calls us to be separate from this world. He calls us to be holy, which means other than this world. And so when we participate in this world's thinking, when we allow it to encumber us, when we allow it to direct us, we lose the fire of God. Pride, pretty self-explanatory. We know that we're wrong, but we won't admit it. If you know that you're wrong and you can't admit it, well, there's some pride. Repent. Pride will kill you. The sin of the devil. Bad stuff. Envy. You desire what someone else has. Covetousness. Lustfully driven to have what someone else has and you don't. It drives you, it destroys you. Envy kills. If you have been supporting envy and prospering it in your life, it needs to stop. Here's a big word that helped us with a definition for it. Censoriousness. Speaking with spite, a bitter spirit, absent of love. Critical, harsh, demeaning, spiteful. You see negatives. You see problems. You don't see what's right. You only see what's wrong. Slander. Speaking in such a way that harms someone else. Saying something that would either expose someone's weaknesses when they're not around or actually make up stories about someone to harm them. But either way, it is destructive towards others. Levity taking sinful behavior lightly. If there is any sin that you know that you have justified, you take lightly, you excuse, that is levity. Lying. Any species of design deception. 
if at any level in your soul you are designing to deceive someone, that is a lie. Satan is the father of lies. We as Christians participate in a kingdom known as the kingdom of truth, ruled by Jesus Christ, the truth himself, in whom whom is no darkness, no lie, no shadow of turning. There is no exaggeration in him. He is truth. And in us should be light, truth. And if we have housed lies and deceit, exaggerations, embellishments, these things need to be broken up as fallow ground. Cheating. I don't know that I need to describe it, but if we have participated in doing anything that would be to our gain, to our increase, though it is unlawful, though it is unjust, though it may steal from someone else, it is cheating. It could be on taxes. It could be in the game of Uno. It makes no difference which form it is in. It is still something that blackens the soul and compacts the dirt and the earth in us. Hypocrisy. Saying one thing with your mouth, living a different way in your life. The term hypocrisies in the Greek actually means like a stage player, an actor. In other words, you have a realness to you here. But then when you're around church folk, you make them feel like you're very spiritual. But then the moment they're not around, you go back to who you really are. Hypocrisy. There should be no difference between what you see and what we see of you, what you see of me, what I see of you here, and who you are when I'm not around or you're not around me. No difference. We just are who we are. Hypocrisy cannot remain in the Christian life. Robbing God. You ever stood in the way where people see you instead of God? That's one way of robbing God. In other words, where you become the answer to them because you really want to be important instead of God being the answer. There also could be other ways of robbing God. There's things that you know you should have given and you haven't. And God has wanted you to bring something of your own resource, whether it's time, whether it's money, and to surrender it and to give it and to share it. And instead you have held it back. Well, how does God give? He gives through us. So when we hold back, we rob God. Bad-tempered. Cranky, frustrated, irritable, moody, bad-tempered. If you're hosting any of these things, I know we all have our justifications. Moody people have tremendous justifications for why they're moody. Sometimes it's just, yeah, I'm a moody person. Terrible justification, by the way. It's sort of like, yeah, I'm a murdering sort of person. You wouldn't get away with that. Well, yeah, I'm an adulterous sort of person. You see, God is constant, and Him is no shadow of turning. I recognize emotions may go like this. However... We stay constant in Christ Jesus. And if there's worldly circumstances that want to push you down, you resist it. Do not go with it. Do not ride the roller coaster that your life goes through. Stay constant in Christ and rejoice always. And again, Paul will say it to us, rejoice. That's our commission, to go up, never down. We do not ride roller coasters based on circumstances. We hang out with Jesus who doesn't change, and he's like a rock. That's a significant thing for us. Bad-tempered, many of us have excuses for why. Misbehaving kids is usually my excuse. That's my, my outlet for a bad temper every now and then. 
and yet it's no excuse. Eric Ludi has to handle misbehaving kids the way Christ would, and not with a bad temper. Number 12, hindering others from being useful. Sometimes when we're living in our lethargy, we actually can become a weight upon others from being effective in what they're doing. We can cause them to justify because we don't, we're justifying in our life. And so whether that's what we're watching, what we're listening to, and then we begin to prosper it in their life and say, oh, I've, this has been really fun for me. And then you pass it on and you give a heritage of that in their life. As we close and the worship team comes up, and by the way, if any of you need to slip out, I want you to feel completely free to do so. I know that we are over what we would have expected to be today, and I want to be sensitive to your life schedule. However, God is doing something in our midst, and if it's possible to stay, I want to invite you to. But as the team is worshiping, I want you to do whatever you need to do to allow that fallow ground to be broken up. Yes, God is the instrument of inspiration to this, but you have to agree and do. You cannot blame it on God that your ground doesn't get broken up. When he makes it clear by his Holy Spirit what needs to be made right, do it. I can't imagine that any of us have made it, has made it through that list without being touched at some level. If there is compacted earth in your soul, don't let it remain compacted. This is a gracious work of God Almighty to give you the gift of insight into your soul so that you could live, so that you could produce fruit. Father, we ask that you would respond to our obedience today. I ask that you would revive this church. And Lord Jesus, I don't want to prescribe even what that would look like or when it would happen. I just know it will. As we humble ourselves and pray, and seek your face and turn away from evil. Lord Jesus, we will see you in all your power, in all your glory, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.